Welcome back to episode number 121 of the MP Dude. This is Jeff the MP Dude giving nurse practitioners a voice. I'm sorry guys, I had another technical difficulty and it's been a little while, about two weeks I haven't posted a show. This is the third time I've recorded an episode and hopefully it sticks. I lost my phone, not physically, but the, the speakers and the microphone died on the damn thing and, and that was my, this is my third one in a year, third Moto Z coming to me. Not not a good endorsement for the Moto Z. So I got my new phone, I'm ready to record, I'm ready to get back into it, and I appreciate you guys sticking with me. We're at like 22 and change on uh, Facebook on the likes. We're doing well, we're moving forward. I need your help to keep it going though, so I want you to share the show, tell your friends about it. I want you to uh, let people know that you like the show, give them a chance, give them a reason to listen. Frogger kicked on again. Other ways you can support the show, give me a rating on iTunes or on Facebook or anywhere you see my name pop up. Shoot me a rating if there's such a thing that exists. Some of the podcast apps allow you to do ratings as well, so you can rate me through those as well, but uh, those are a lot less seen, so iTunes and Facebook are the best too. The other way you can support the show is to use the Amazon affiliate link. It's been flat since I've been not producing content for you guys, so I am sorry for that, but what I want you to do is use the Amazon affiliate link if you want to support the show financially. It's a great way to do it. It doesn't cost you a dime more. How do you do it? You go to my website, thenpdude.com, click on the Amazon banner. It takes you to Amazon. You do the shopping you otherwise would have, and it kicks me a couple percent of your purchase without charging you anything more. It's a great way to support the show. Chronic Intractable t-shirts are ordered. They're in. I got to go pick them up and I'll get those out to you guys. If you guys want, I have a couple extra I bought. So if you guys want a Chronic Intractable t-shirt, $25, I need an email to jeff at the npdude.com. You give me your size, the address you want me to ship them to. I'll send you how to pay for it. And uh, you need to use PayPal. That's it. You can also uh, help support the show with the donate button. That's the other way you can do it. So what are we going to talk about? Uh, again, this is like the third time I've talked about this because it's a good topic. And I, and I really wanted to get, I did a good show. I thought it was really good. I thought I hit all the bases on it. And, um, you know, now it's, you know, two and a half weeks delayed from somebody bringing the topic up. But it's still good information. And what do we want to talk about is do you at an FQHC have to get your own malpractice policy. And I've, and I've, you know, it's like anything else. If you, if you remove yourself from it for a while, you lose some passion. So I was a little bit passionate in the last couple times I recorded this. And so I'm going to try to keep some of the passion appropriately, but I'm not, you know, I'm not going to yell at you guys. Yes, you always get your own malpractice policy. There's your answer. <laughs> but why, why does it matter? The, the, the comments that I see from people are, well, I'm covered under the FTCA, and I do not need to have my own malpractice policy because I am exempt as an, as an employee or a contractor of the federal government. And I say, maybe. Usually, but not always. And there's still other reasons I would still get my own malpractice policy, and I'll go through those as well. The Federal Tort Claims Act, or FTCA, came out in the 1940s. What else happened in the 1940s? World War II, right? So we came out of World War II, and then in the late 40s, I want to say it was 46 or 47, this law was passed, and it codified or made put into code what the governmental immunity was prior to that time. 
But it went one step further, and it basically said that the federal government would not only give immunity to people acting under the color of law, and, and I'll explain that too in a second, but it, w- it also stepped in their shoes. So it indemnified employees if they were acting within their scope of employment or duties on their job, even if it was an intentional thing that they did. And I'll give you an example. World War II, there were egregious constitutional violations all the time. In the name of national security and, you know, the heightened, you know, the fear in the country and some of it was unwarranted in my opinion. A lot of it was unwarranted. And the one that comes to mind, and I have no proof that this is what they were actually writing this law for, but it's a good example of why the law was written. Japanese internment camps were a gross violation of constitutional law. These people were rounded up. American citizens at gunpoint were told, get some of your basic things and come with me. And you're going to go live in this fenced-in area in this little, you know, boxes that they called homes. Until the war's over. To make sure that you're not a sympathizer and, you know, where you're going to harm Americans or intelligence or whatever. For whatever weird reason they, they thought they had. So it was a gross violation. Now, I want you to think of a, a movie where you see a 1940s, you know, looking guy in his uniform, in his army uniform, and he's got his gun, and he's, a, you know, he's an officer, a lieutenant or something, and he's got his hand on his gun, and he goes up to some guy's house in the middle of America and knocks on the door, and a guy comes to the door and says, hey, what's up? What do you need? <laughs> you know, he's American. He happens to be Japanese-American, but he's American. And the guy goes, you have to come with me, sir, and you have to get your family. And they're like, no, I'm not coming with you. Why am I coming with you? No, you just have to come with me. If you don't, you're going to be, you know, we're going to take you the hard way. You can do it easier or hard. The guy's kids were standing behind him, and his wife's in the corner crying. And, you know, here he's like, okay, let's get some stuff and go. The problem was is that that's, if, if that was an, a, a, another American citizen that was not acting under the color of law, under the, you know, the, the guise of, of working as a government employee, then, then, they would be in jail for kidnapping for a long time. You can't just go up to somebody and knock on the door and say, come with me, sir. You can't do that. That's a, that's a violation of the Constitution. You need, to, you need due process, and you have to have probable cause, and you can't just detain people without probable cause. There's a whole bunch of violations. Constitutional-level stuff here. So the guy goes and, and lives in the internment camp for a couple of years with his wife and kids and um, gets out and goes back at his house and, you know, tries to rebuild his life. And he bumps into this lieutenant guy that, that put the gun in his face at his house and he sees him on the street and he, he says, oh, now I know where this guy is. And he, he files a lawsuit against him in, in civil court for uh, kidnapping or, you know, it, it would actually be... Um, um, trespass on something, you know, I don't know, you'd have to have some weird claim, but they either, they're, I'm sure there's one out there. They'd be like a trespass on chattels type of thing where, you know, they break down the door and take your stuff and, you know, that. The federal government came out with this law that says, no, 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 we did so many gross violations of, of people's civil liberties that if we don't codify this, it's going to be a nightmare in the courts. And so it basically exempted those individuals that did those acts that were clear violations of the Constitution and said, nope, you got to sue the federal government. If you want to, if you want to sue anybody, you got to sue the federal government. And um, they step in the shoes of the individual and say, we got your back. 
And so that's the idea of the FTCA. Now, fast forward till 2017, 2018, you've got individuals that are now being offered positions in FQHCs, right? Those are what? Federally Qualified Health Centers, I think, is what it stands for. I don't know. I don't work in an FQHC, so it doesn't really matter to me what it's called. But what it is, is it's a federally funded private organization. You're a contractor as an FQHC to the federal government. And and the FTCA in and of itself doesn't say anything about a lot of the areas of the federal government, whether it's individuals in the government or contractors, doesn't say anything about them individually, but there are subsequent laws that do apply the FTCA to specific organizations or industries or things like that, so that it is clear cut. And I swear to you, I knew the number. It was 220, I think, Section 220 of some law, and I can't remember what it was because it was two and a half weeks ago when I when I ran across it, and it was a law that basically allocated. FTCA to apply to the um, FQHCs in particular. Now, why would I still say get your own malpractice if the FTCA covers you? Your malpractice is covered. You're you're acting under the color of law. You're you know you've got specific uh, legislative uh, documentation that's that's saying you you're, you're covered. You don't need to worry about it. Don't waste the money. You got fifteen hundred bucks in your pocket now. Congratulations. Well, these FQHCs are going to use that as leverage to try to entice you. Oh, you don't need to worry about malpractice because you're covered. That gives you a false sense of security that you are covered. But in reality, you still have to follow the standard of care. You can still get sued if you're not following the standard of care. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the federal government's going to terminate your employment and you're probably going to get a board action. They may represent you in court for your action of of that claim, but they won't do any other stuff. A malpractice policy does two other things that I think is important. Now, let's do this first. As part of the FQHC process, you have to apply every year. I believe it's every year. There was an application process, and it was pretty routine. I think it's a year. that, That you have to actually apply for the FTCA to apply to your individual office or organization. We'll just say it that way. So who's doing an application? Are you sure that application was filed? Do you have documentation that you are a qualified organization or entity? When I saw it on the website, qualified was in big, bold letters, all capitals, and it was all over the page. So it said qualified companies are covered. Qualify this, qualify that. Well, what does it mean to be qualified? Most FQHCs are qualified, from what I read, so it shouldn't be a problem, but you still have to file the paperwork properly and appropriately. And if you don't do it, then there may be a lapse in your your coverage. And if you miss your coverage for the first two months, is there a rolling basis? Do you have to wait till next year to reapply? Is it an annual thing, or is it, you know, ongoing enrolling, enrollment? These are all things I don't know the answer to. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say your office manager probably barely knows what they're doing on this. They're probably just, you know, doing the best they can getting paperwork filed, and I'd be surprised if half of them don't have it filled out. It would scare me. It really would scare me putting that much trust in a piece of paper that is low priority in a lot of cases for a non-licensed professional that's going to be filling it out for you on your behalf. They don't care about your license. This is the office manager. They, they, they worry about today. What am I getting yelled at for today? What do I have to worry about for billing? 
How are we going to get paid? Do we make, uh, you know, are we getting payroll done? All of these, these things are the things the office manager was really worrying about. They, 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 the, this is low, low priority for them. And, and to me, it should be one of the highest priorities for a, a provider. I, it scares me for individuals that are in FQHCs that say, oh, I got it, I, I'm covered. And they have no idea if that paperwork has been filed or not. If I went to work for an FQHC, I would be saying, okay, if I go to work here, I want proof right now that you have filed all the proper documentation. And you're going to be a thorn in their side. But that's, it's your liability. You're, you're not going to be covered if it's not filed. So that scares me for you. That's, that's the main reason. But there's two other subsequent reasons. One is very simple. Well, they're both simple. If you have a malpractice policy, most of them will cover you for non-claim issues as well. So you need to make sure you got a reputable company. I love pro-liability. I got my extra little coverage policies adders on there that come with my policy. I didn't even have to ask for them. They're built in, and I was like, oh, I kind of like that. You know, pay, I, I pay extra for that, and it's already included. And what am I talking about? I've talked about this in the past. One of them is if you get pulled in, say you screw up and you hurt somebody. And you, you heard them for, uh, you know, whatever. You, you've clearly violated the, maybe you went outside of your scope of practice and you prescribed a medicine that you really shouldn't have done. You didn't really know what you were doing. You prescribed the wrong medicine. You hurt somebody. You get sued. Well, the federal government may or may not cover you through the FTCA and step in and say, yeah, we'll cover you. They may. That's fine. But then you're probably going to get a board action. If, if the plaintiff's attorney is worth a crap, they're going to file an action against you and file uh, a claim against you individually and the government. And then they're also going to um, file a board action against you and make a, make a complaint with the board. So now you, you may have the FTCA cover your claim in court, but they're not going to cover your board action. So you're going to need to get a lawyer. You're going to want a lawyer anyways for all of this. So your own malpractice policy will allow you to get whoever you want. So if something happens, regardless if you work for the government, you still want your own policy. So you can get your board action covered as well. So for your attorney's fees. So it kind of, you know, it's, I get 25 grand. That's a nice chunk of change. I get 25 grand for uh, going to uh, depositions too um, for attorneys, for attorney's fees for depositions. So let's say you get pulled into a lawsuit as a, you get a subpoena in the mail. And the subpoena says... Uh, you're not being named, but you need to show up and appear in uh, either in court or for a deposition. We'll just say it's a deposition because usually that's how it happens. And you, you, you kind of go to this deposition. You can't get out of it. You first thing you're going to do is you're going to call your lawyer and say, is this, re- is this real? Is this legit? Do I have to go? And they're going to be like, yeah, you probably need to go. Let's go. Get your stuff. And they're going to say, well, what, what, what happened in this case that you're being deposed? Is it, you know, a coworker is getting sued for back child support and you're just an eyewitness, maybe you don't need to go with your lawyer. I still would. Just just so I wouldn't be beat up too much. It just It's insurance for me. Your malpractice coverage may not cover that, by the way, if it's, you know, for a personal thing. But if, let's say you, you're a colleague in your office, you know, you, that you saw this patient one time for a sinusitis and the rest of the time they see another provider and that provider messed up. And you're being deposed as a factual witness, not as an expert witness, but as a factual witness. They're different. Go back and listen to my shows. And um, you got to pay a lawyer for that. 
if you're working at FQHC and you buy the, the, the lie that, oh, you don't need to get your own malpractice policy, you're, you're going to be strung out there on your own paying, you know, five, 10 grand. I, you know, it, just, it depends. It depends on how long the case is. If you've got a couple days of prep, all the paperwork and stuff that has to be reviewed by your lawyer, if there's a ton of stuff that you want to get true estimation of your potential liability, they got to look at it all as well. So is that, is that worth it to you? It is to me. It's peace of mind. I, I know I can, I can make a call to a big gun in town that I've got, not on speed dial, but I, I got his number and uh, he knows me. I haven't talked to him in a while, but he knows me. If I need him, I got him. And um, I encourage you guys to do the same thing, too. You should be shopping around for a good attorney that's malpractice attorney for the defense side. And have somebody that's, you know, not a scumbag, not a slime ball that you vet their, their rating. You can get their Martindale Hubble rating. That's a great way to check and see if they're actually um, other attorneys, you know, sees, will uh, rate each other. And Martindale Hubble ratings, AV rating is like the best. I mean, there's a whole rating system that you can do. So that's a, a valuable asset to, to look up. You can go to the bar association in your in your um, in your county or in your area. If it's a city, you can go to that bar association. You can talk to them and say, "Look, I'm I'm thinking of looking for a malpractice attorney. I don't have an issue now, but I want to get somebody on retainer. Give them a thousand bucks or two thousand bucks just to have their phone number ready. And if you've questioned, boom, you can get them going. It's it's the reason I get people to pulmonologists when they have COPD. I like to get them evaluated because if they have an exacerbation, they're going to have to follow up. I don't want them waiting a month and a half to do that. If they're on their surface, they can get in usually a little quicker. That's the reason I like to get people, you know, get them, get checked in. You don't have to go there all the time, but just, you know, be on their service, go see them once a year. Same thing with your lawyer. You don't have to go see them, but just keep them on speed dial in case you need them. You never know. When you have a stressful event, the last thing you want to do is make a gut decision on who to trust as a lawyer. You should do it when you have a clear mind. It's the same thing with like doing DNR stuff. You should think about that before the event. Anyways, the other thing I wanted to talk about um, and, I, and I kind of broke into this one when I was doing the other show and I kind of broke into it in the middle of like it was a rant, a side rant. And um, the malpractice issue about why people don't get malpractice policies when their provide their their company provides it for them, in general, and I've talked about this before, but it just it really bothers me, and I still see tons of people asking the question: My employer provides a policy. Do I need my own? Yes, you always need your own. It's your license. You really need to protect it like it's the most valuable thing on the planet. You need to protect it. I don't care if somebody else gets. What if they don't? pay the premium. Have you seen the policy? Do you know what your coverage really is? How many people say, oh, my, my, my employer provides my malpractice policy. Good. Then they should give you a copy of it. Where is it? Review it. If there's holes in it, you say, look, uh, I'm not covered for this, this, and this. Um, and I do that, that, and that. Don't you think we should make this policy fit what we do here? That could happen. I, it just it, it bothers me. Now the other thing is is that I've I've heard this argument all the time. If you have your own malpractice policy, it will it will extend your liability. You're gonna be extended your liability. You're gonna get sued more. Oh no, no you won't. That's complete BS. 
Your liability is limited to the extent of the harm that you caused. Let me do that again, if I can do it the same way. Your liability is limited to the extent of the harm that you caused. One more time. Your liability is limited to the extent of the harm that you caused. It doesn't go any higher than what you do to somebody. If I cause damage to somebody of $1,000, I screwed up. Yes, I screwed up. I owe you. I, I, I'll take care of you. And I only harmed you by $1,000 worth of you know tabular data. You know, I can look at it and say, I hurt you for $1,000. If I have malpractice insurance that will cover me for $1,000, it'll pay all of it. If I have malpractice policy that covers me for $6 million, it'll pay $1,000. It doesn't extend your liability. Having more insurance does not extend your liability. Now, I read Carolyn Bupert's book back when I was in school. And it wasn't okay. It wasn't, the, it wasn't the greatest. And the reason I say it was just okay was because there was a lot of stuff to a layman that is going to sound important, but in reality, you're never going to encounter. You're going to have, long have an attorney in place before you ever come into needing any of that information. Is it, is it on point? Maybe. Is it too wordy? I thought it was. And I haven't read it, and I read it, and then I immediately sold it back. I didn't even keep it. Because I was like, eh, it's just paperweight at this point. I'm never going to open it again. But for a layman, it's not a bad resource. And if you're looking at the big picture stuff about the tort liability, it was like two or three chapters out of that whole book were valuable. The rest of them to me, and I'm just going off memory, the rest of it was like, okay, yeah, even me as a lawyer, this is fluff. There's nothing here that's substantive that I need to worry about in practice, typically. Now, is there other issues that maybe, you know, specific to advanced you know, setting up a company or something that was in there. There was other weird stuff about the government you know, grants and stuff, I think, in the later chapters. It, was, it wasn't real helpful. But the book did have one thing that was good, and it pointed out the only reason, the only reason that you would say, maybe I wouldn't get my own malpractice policy in addition to my employer's would be because it might keep you in the lawsuit a little longer because they know you have malpractice insurance. If you're an insolvent defendant, insolvent means you got no money. You've got more debt than you've got income. So you really can't pay this pack or this person back for the damage. So like say some guy that doesn't know, he doesn't have a job, doesn't have any money. He's got no insurance on his car. He runs into me. He's insolvent. I'm never going to, you know, I can sue the crap out of him. I'm going to win. But it's like getting, you know, oil from a stone. You, you, you can't squeeze it all you want. You're not going to get anything out of it. So... That's maybe the only reason, but the, 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 the risk of, of not having malpractice coverage that covers you for everything that you should be doing in practice as much as possible, let's, let's be realistic, and, and, the, um, and the potential of being in the lawsuit for you know, a couple weeks longer, risk-benefit, the risk far outweighs any benefit of not getting it. It just doesn't make sense to me. And, and I think she would agree that that's not the, the reason to do it. I think she was just pointing out, you know, this is the only thing I could think of. And I, I agree. That's the only reason I could think of, too. And I remember seeing I'm like, yeah, I agree with that. So that was valuable. That was valuable in her book. And I'm not saying don't get her book. You know, there's people who are going to say, oh, Jeff thinks she's not good. No, I think she's a smart lady. I think she's a pioneer for um, medical legal for nurse practitioners. And uh, I applaud her. She's doing great work for people, helping people. And it's awesome. But I'm just saying, as far as the critique of the book, it's, you know, from a legal perspective, it was a lot of words. Didn't provide a lot of substance to me. But for a layman, it might be okay. So go buy the book. I don't care. I'm not endorsing it, but 
It's your choice. Last one we're going to do today. Um, we're 23-some minutes, I think. I am stuck behind two trucks, and I'm late to work. Killing me. I see this happen, and, and I've seen this question come into me through emails. I've seen it on Facebook. I've seen it all over the place. I've, I've had personal you know, colleagues of mine ask me this question. And um, <laughs> I'm not going to use names, but it's kind of similar to this. Just just talked to her not too long ago. And, and it seemed like right as soon as the new year happened, this question came up. And I think I have a theory on why. Um, probably 10 people have asked or said something on, on, in, my, in my circles in the last couple weeks about being in a contract that is overly just shitty. You get paid garbage. You're making 80, 70, 80 grand a year. No, no incentive plan, no bonus structure, low CME, low vacation time, whatever. And you've been doing it for a couple of years because that's all you could get. And you, you guys know my philosophy now that, that we should all try to lift each other up to get the highest rate we can and be respected in, in what we do. Um, but I am a realist and I understand that you have bills to pay and you have kids to feed and you've got um, clothes to buy. And so I'm, I'm realistic. If that's the only thing you can get in your, or in your area, you take it and you get the experience because you, once you get experience, you can job hop and, and climb the ladder quicker. But if you don't get the experience, it's just harder to get that first job. So you take what you can get. I get that. But here's the problem. They're three, four years in and now the, the, the organization has grown. You're seeing more patients. They've, they've added on more tasks to your job description. Um, you're taking on more responsibilities and you're kicking ass for them and you're making them a ton of money and you're still making crap, just crap. And I, and I see these, these comments all the time coming into me and saying, Jeff, what do I do? And, and it's simple. Do you, do you want to stay there or do you want to leave? If you want to stay there, you need to renegotiate. If new people are coming in and they're making more than you and they've, they have not recognized the fact that you're still in existence kicking ass for them, making them money, then, then that's, that's your fault to some extent. I'm not trying to be mean and I'm not trying to be... But you, you guys, if, if I was in the circumstance where I was making a crappy rate and I was under contract and I'm kicking ass... I'm seeing 20-some patients a day. I'm pulling in $350,000, $400,000 a year for this organization. Maybe less. Say it's two fifty. It doesn't matter. But a good number. Way more than two and a half times what I'm making. If I was in that position, and then they hired somebody that came right in, and I had knowledge, open knowledge, not me snooping around and finding out how much this new person makes, but open knowledge, like, you know, oh, yeah, we hired so-and-so, and they tell you that they, what the rate is, or the person comes in the front door and says, yeah, I'm making this. It's awesome, and you're making, you know, ten bucks less an hour or something ridiculous. Then, then I would be in that manager's office that day asking for a meeting to renegotiate the contract because there's a problem here, especially if you have not been alerted to a reason of why your rate is so low. So maybe they expect more. Maybe it's urgent care, and you're still only seeing twenty-five patients. You need to be seeing forty. Maybe you aren't as productive as you think you are. Maybe you don't have a good rapport and there's been a lot of complaints and they just haven't had a chance to talk to you about it yet. So maybe you're not the good employee that we think. But 
I think that most, you know, from the number of people that I'm, that I'm seeing, and I, I really believe that most of them are just getting taken advantage of. If you are willing to be taken advantage of, that's whose fault is that? Shame on you for the first one, or shame on them for the first one, but it's shame on you for the next contract term. If you accept those terms again, that's your fault. And you have the leverage, so not all the leverage, but you got a lot more leverage the second negotiation. Why do you have the leverage? Because when they come into the room to say, okay, Jeff, we've, we've had you here for a year, you're doing good, you're, you're seeing this many numbers of patients, and you have knowledge of how much money you're making them, you know how much money you're making them. You know your value. And you go into them and say, you have eyes open now and say, look, I'm making you X dollars and I'm down here. And I need to be up here. How are we going to make that happen? And they're going to him and haw and give every reason not to. And you're going to go in with a high number and they're going to meet you hopefully in the middle. So if you want to be around 110, you go at 130, 140. So look, I'm pulling in 300 grand a year for you. There's no reason I shouldn't be making 140, 150 for you. And you still making a ton of money off me. Even with all my expenses overhead and MA costs and all the other stuff. That's what I would do. I'd schedule an appointment. Let's go through this. Why Why do you not value me? Because it's obvious from the pay scale. I bend over backwards to work extra shifts or, I, you know, I, I take extra patients throughout the day. You know, when the when the MA is sick for, you know, and the, the next MA is coming in two hours later, I'll ruin my own patients for an hour or two just because I'm trying to keep patients flowing through the office. Another provider calls off. I You know, I'll double up my patients. Whatever, whatever it is that you do that, that makes their job easier and makes them money, you, sh- you throw it on the table and say, I now know that I make you this and I do this that makes your pain less. And that's valuable. So either we, we come to a conclusion or, you know, I'm, I, well, I may have to look for another job. I don't know. I don't want to leave. But jeepers, creepers, if you can't come up, we're going to make this thing end. And then you see what they say. Now, if they say, oh, we're going to give you a termination, that's, you, better, you better know where you stand before you do that. But I wouldn't hesitate. They're not going to fire you for going and saying, look, I think I'm more valued than that. You, <laughs> you valuing yourself is not reasons, in my opinion, for them to want to terminate you. Now, down the line, they may say, yeah, Jeff knows what he's worth now. Maybe we'll get rid of him and get another new grad that doesn't know what's going on, and we'll, we'll, we'll take advantage of them for a couple of years, and then we'll suck the profits off them. But they don't really want to do that, usually, because it takes time to train people. It takes time to credential them. It's all, What a headache. Bringing new people on board is a disaster for a, new, for a practice. It takes three, four months to get you up to speed. You're not really rocking and rolling until three, six months in. So half of your first year or your first contract, you're, you're not really that productive. You're loss. And the second half, you're, you're probably breaking them even. So if they have to turn over every year, that's just that's breaking even. That's not growing. They want consistency. Plus, the patients like the consistency, and you know, as long as everybody likes you, then it should be fine. But I see this. I, I think that I was seeing this because the new year, everybody's seeing 2018, and and they're saying, "Well, geez, I'm I'm not making more than I was last year." Another year where I'm not getting ahead. And in in business and in life, if you're not moving forward, if you're stagnant, then you're falling behind. In reality, so. You need, to, you need to be getting something every year. If you if you cap out at 90, that's you're done. Move on. They don't respect you. They don't know what it is that you do. Move on. 
Find something else. Open your own practice if you can. Whatever. Do whatever you got to do. So, guys, I am super excited to be back doing this. I am sorry for such a delay. It wasn't really my intention. Um, but just things happen. So sometimes stuff happens that we can't control and we move forward, right? So keep listening, keep sharing. I do appreciate each and every one of you guys. Um, all the comments have just been fantastic. I've got a couple, uh, a guy on another forum that I, that I, um, I met just, ra- you know, happenstance. It was like, uh, you know, what is it you do on, you know, everybody was curious to see what they did. And somebody was, somebody was a psych NP. I think they were NP and they had one criticism of me, but they give me a rating give me a good reading, I think, I just haven't had a chance to look, so um, it's just weird how you can connect with people in other places in your world, so tell everybody what you do, promote our profession, take care of your patients by doing a kick-ass job, that's the best way we can promote, promote our profession, do good work, and people will notice it, be smart, be safe, we'll talk soon.